0: so much for listening to exactly with me Florence Given. this podcast is basically a permission slip to just follow your curiosity I wanted to have these conversations on social media with people for so long but I feel like social media is so much more invested in creating a binary because the binary when you have two opposing sides it's good for the algorithm it gets people heated it gets people in debate and I'm just more interested in talking to people and asking them questions about things that I find it really fucking interesting. And people who have so much more knowledge, expertise in all of these areas than I do. I love bringing women together. It's one of the pillars of all of my work, to be honest. It kind of underpins everything I'm doing, uh, whether that's with my art, with my writing, with my books, and now with my podcast. I'm obsessed with having these conversations with people. It just, every single time I leave with a little skip in my step and I just feel... So lucky to be able to talk to these people and talk about all of the stuff that I wish I'd been taught in school. And don't forget every fifth episode, you get to take the mic in the call-in episode. One of the things I love most about making this podcast is hearing from you and answering your questions and doing my best to help you overcome any challenges or dilemmas. So, if you want to be a part of it and ask me and my brilliant guest experts a question, you can send me a message or a voice note via our podcast WhatsApp number. That's plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. And if there's any particular topic that you want us to cover in one of these call in episodes, please do get in touch and let us know. I always love hearing your suggestions. In today's episode, I'm joined by someone seriously inspiring and impressive. I've followed her for a long time online and I've learned so much from her colourful, snappy and engaging post on everything from makeup to Islamophobia to bi to queer history and so much fucking more. My guest today is Blair Imani, the author of her book Read This to Get Smarter and Herstory Stories of Women and Non-Binary People Rewriting History. Blair is also a historian, educator, mental health advocate, speaker, and entrepreneur. She also has this in her Instagram bio that she's a black bisexual Muslim. I just think it's so iconic that she has this in her bio. She talks a lot about how her experience with these identities impact one another. I just love that she's unapologetically exactly who she fucking is. What I love so much about her is that she uses her platform to teach people about often really complex and difficult topics, but she just has the most joyful and exuberant energy. She really celebrates herself in a way that gives others permission to do the same, and we love that around here. What a lot of my guests have in common on Exactly is making these big topics accessible and entertaining. And it's something that's super important for me to do in my own work as well. And I've only really just noticed this pattern with my guests. And that's why I fucking love them all so much. They show that there's not one way to be an activist. There's not one way to be an artist, there are so many ways, and so many ways to have these conversations as well. And I love that what each of my guests on Exactly does with their own work in their own ways is provide nuance to the pool of division online. They're all just so fucking beautiful and I love all my guests so much and I can't wait to talk to Blair Day. At the time of recording this episode, I did have a cold, so you might hear a few little sniffles in my voice. Blair, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And it's great to finally meet you in person. You look incredible. Can you please talk us through your outfit? I need people to experience this.
1: So yes, for the audio visual. So (laughs) um, I have a glorious little sun-kissed glow from Greece. Bless up. But acne Mm. because I refuse to stop eating cheese. Um, (laughs) I'm also wearing my own lipstick collection from Power Beauty called Ubuntu. The lipsticks are all quite deep because... I am. And this color represents um, mutual respect. Uh, And it's also kind of cool because my friends, who are the founders of it, they're a lesbian couple. They just got married. I officiated their wedding. And I learned that their heritage, like their ancestors, invented purple dye. So the lip I'm wearing is purple. So I feel like very, oh. like, I'm a historian too, so I Feels feel like, like I'm yeah, on it. Ev- yeah, you know?
0: everything you're doing is intentional with it after today, lesbian lipstick. Exactly. I love. <laughs>
1: um, and then I'm wearing a pink hijab, <laughs> and then I'm wearing a little caftan, which is just this fun kind of jewel tone print so with cute. yellow and orange and white
0: and purple. It looks incredible. <laughs> you're just, you're, you're such a vision. I just needed people to hear what you're wearing. Um, so before we get into everything I want to ask you today, I'm going to go through my flosses quick fire five questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. Question one, what is one thing that sets your soul on fire?
1: Uh, historical inaccuracy, like in a bad way where I want to like fight. <laughs> historical
0: inaccuracy. Yeah.
1: Okay. I know we these are supposed to be rapid fire, but like if I walk through a museum and I see something like blatantly like heteronormative in a way that it's not meant to be mm-hmm. or like something that just makes zero sense. Like I was in the archaeological museum in Heraklion uh, in, in uh, Crete, and they were saying that uh, clearly whatever like white British man un- excavated the stuff was like, why are there zero white men depicted? I know. I know it's the case. All of the dark <laughs> figures are not dark skinned women. They're men. And okay. so it's just like stuff like that where I'm just like, what the heck? And I okay. feel the need to like go on a little bit of a rant. Mm-hmm. So I did a little video on that, on my stories. But yeah, historical inaccuracy pisses me off.
0: That's <laughs> fucking fascinating. And I can't wait to ask you more about this. I have so many questions about how you even got into history, why sexuals are all on fire. I'm going to get into that in the main interview. That's an amazing answer. Question number two, what's the last photo you took? What was it or a picture of?
1: Uh, I mean, let me just be honest right now. I'll look at my phone. <laughs> Let's see. And then lie if it was a new. Nu- just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a picture of me putting on this lipstick on the tube.
0: Oh, gorgeous. <laughs> okay, question number three. What's something that people frequently misunderstand or get wrong about you?
1: Oh, people think I'm so serious. Yeah. <laughs> my my main headshot is me, like, with my arms crossed. Yes. And I was like, you yeah. don't need to smile, so I'm not going to smile. But my personality <laughs> is just like a constant smile, so people think I'm quite serious, so I've started to have, like, tell more jokes and stuff, because when people meet me, they're like, you're so fun, and I'm like, I come off as quite severe online.
0: I I find that interesting, because I don't see you as quite a severe person, I see you as someone who cares about things, it's very informed, but at the heart of absolutely everything you do, you're so fucking joyful. Like, when I think of Blair, I think of Blair smiling. Okay, next question. Finish the sentence, I'm still a work in progress when it comes to... Quite frankly, everything, but I
1: guess to be specific, my relationship with food, I'm working mm. on that, you know, again growing up in LA, yeah. diet culture is everywhere. Yeah. And I had to get over this feeling of like guilt every time it was time to be hungry. Mm. Like, no, like thank you, body, for letting me know that it's time to eat, thank you for taking yeah. care of me instead of like, shame on you for existing and being alive,
0: you mm-hmm. know. I want to get into talking about being bisexual. I fucking love being bisexual. Do you love being bisexual? I love it. I love it. (laughs) I love being bisexual.
1: Um, Can't stand the bi-erasure though. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. It's frustrating. So let's talk about bi-erasure and your experience of it.
1: I kind of just say like, you know, I'm queer and I leave it at that. And I think for such a long time in my career, like when I was first becoming a public figure, Mm -hmm. people didn't know I was queer. I think that after I did come out, there was this expectation that you're not really bisexual unless you're either single or in a relationship with a woman or somebody mm-hmm. who's non-binary and feminine. Because of bi and because of homophobia and sexism and all these things, women are defined by our relationships. Mm-hmm. And then our identities become conflated with that. And then we're expected to justify our bisexuality by disclosing our, like, you know, Darkness. our sexual past, our sexual history. Past, yes. Yes, our sexual yes. history. Yes. And it's, it's all quite— uh, unnecessary mm-hmm. and I think I even struggle with it you know like outwardly I try to project like this very like confident image of being like a bisexual who understands her bisexuality and all these things and you know first coming out as a lesbian and then determining oh wow bisexuality is a thing and really feeling confident in that but there is kind of this creeping or by panic of like yes. but what if I'm just a really bad yes. lesbian? But it's, what if this, you know? It's like queer
0: imposter syndrome, isn't it? Oh, completely. It? How do you feel about the word lesbian? Because I feel like so many queer people have different relationships with it. Some people grow up to think that it was a dirty word. I know people have only just like felt comfortable using it. Was that ever a word? that you were taught was dirty? Oh, ever? no.
1: Okay, well, so first of all, my parents are hippies. Like, okay. they're just straight up, very yeah. affirming. Like, <laughs> my mom is so sex positive that I really feel like the part of the reason why I dress so modestly is because my mom was so... Body positivity. Wow. <laughs> like, okay, okay. You know, like I had that book. the other way. This is me rebelling. Okay. You know? And even, <laughs> you know, with that said, like I've always thought that lesbian was such a pretty word. Like to mm. me, bisexual, I was confused about because the word "sexuals" in it, and then you would think it has to do directly with your sexual history. But <sighs> yes. shout out to Glad in 2007. I want to say where mm. my mom and I looked up what it meant, and it was about how you don't have to have any or equal experiences with whatever genders to be mm. bisexual, and it's not something. Like, I think because bisexuality is so delegitimized versus, you know, queerness or being a lesbian or being gay that, you know, not to erase those struggles, but to feel like it doesn't even exist. Mm. So that way, when you're like kind of out in the world and you're finding yourself like passionately like drawn to somebody, regardless of their gender, which for many folks, aligns more with pansexuality, but I use them interchangeably. Me too, I'm the same. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I think, oh, there's just such a mess. And then you have the people who think that bisexuality <laughs> means that you agree with a binary, or and that you there's don't... transphobia, yes, and yes, like, yeah. yeah, that can be the case in anything because we are mm. all socialized in these systems of harm to the point where we have folks, it doesn't matter who you are, you can still perpetuate oppression, right? Mm. And so the expectation that one group of people, whether that be Muslims or bisexuals, are specifically hateful, it just adds another layer of something you have to break through in addition to understanding yourself. So mm. it's quite a headache.
0: Yeah. So so what what do you think about the word queer? And can you talk a little bit about the history of the word queer?
1: Absolutely. Ask me to talk about history. Wow. <laughs> yes, please go off. Go. So queer is interesting. And so is the word straight, quite frankly, because mm. they became part of the lexicon right around the same time where, you know, <laughs> queer and gay kind of meant like happy. And then you have queer starting to mean odd. And you see this really start up in the end of World War One into World War II two, straight at the same time meant on the right path, not deviating, Mm -hmm. correct. And then we have queer meaning a little bit off, deviating and, you know, not the proper way. And so both of those things, like queer becomes peculiar and straight becomes on the, you know, straight and air, like we see it all the time. Yeah. And so they become dichotomous terms used to describe people that are doing society correctly, you know, 1.5 children, all that. And then queer people who are messing with the status quo. And there's this current moment happening in the States, and I think definitely here as well, where people are like, no, people who are being themselves are disrupting the social order. And it's like, well, maybe if the social order is repressive, it needs to be disrupted. Yes. Yes. You know?
0: Yes, yes, um, yes. <laughs>
1: and so, but then as we get into the 1980s, as we see the rise of the HIV AIDS crisis, um, queer starts to be used as like an accusation. And we see this, we've seen this throughout the past 100 years, but queer becomes an accusation. It becomes a verbal attack. It becomes these words that you don't want to be. Okay. And there are so many words that, you know, we have the the F word that mm-hmm. people used to say cigarettes in the UK. We don't gay men. Yeah, yeah, we don't use that in the States. There's just so many different words. And it all has to do with, with your performance of masculinity. And then the words that we see used against women are terms that are used to describe that you're not performing femininity in the proper way.
0: Yeah. So those words are used to say that you're not performing by. Oh,
1: that's completely what it is. It's yeah. like, because you could be called queer, you could be called all these words. Regardless of your actual sexual orientation, true, because it's true. an assumption, you know, yeah. that's why all these policies around uh, dress codes and haircuts and everything aren't specific aren't just to attack non-binary and trans people. It's to attack everyone like wh- whomever is just existing. It's to dictate who you are and how you're behaving and how you're violating cisnormativity or heteronormativity.
0: Mm. You grew up Christian, yeah, and then you decided to practice faith for Islam, and so you're Muslim and bisexual. When you did a whole TED Talk on being Muslim and bisexual, um, and it was fucking amazing, by the oh, way, thank you. and it's so inspiring. And yeah, I wanted to talk about that. Thank you. Yeah.
1: it was a story that I felt like I needed to tell. Maybe not the first one that came off the top of my head, because when it comes to being yourself, it feels quite. Like bland and just regular and casual, but to other people, do you mean to
0: say? Do you mean to tell people be yourself? Would you mean to actually just be yourself? Just to be yourself. It's so
1: mundane, you know. Like when somebody has a super cool job, but they do it every day, it's like they're like, yeah, whatever. You know, I build rockets Mm -hmm. out of whatever, and it's and you're just like, wow. But to them, they do it every day, so it's whatever. So I think I had that kind of approach, but it was really just a story of myself. And there are so many beautiful TED talks that just talk about who you are and how it can be educational because. There are so many ways we're told we can't be ourselves. And so when we see somebody who just is being themselves and telling that story and for me trying to add some jokes to it, but – what I love at the end is when, if you're able to talk to the people afterward, because mm. everyone has a different perspective mm. about the speech that just took place. Some people will come and be like, oh, I loved this part. And you're like, what do you even mean? I think you
0: do this on your Instagram really well, though, bringing in your audience with your reels, uh, Smarter in Seconds. Can you talk a bit more about that? Because it's oh, just absolutely. amazing the way you've been able to curate all of your content while still making it incredibly impactful and so easy to understand I don't think anyone would feel excluded from your content and I don't mean like per video and that it's your responsibility to cover every topic I just mean in terms of its accessibility it's so everything you could want is laid out in this short video. I just think it's a big skill to have.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. Really, it comes from like a lot of coping mechanisms that I had growing up to get quite deep immediately. Like yeah. first, thank you so much for the affirmations. Um growing up, I was the only like we were the only black family in the neighborhood. And so my parents, again, Los Angeles, very celebrity, very image assessed town. And I had this experience of We're not going to school unless your hair is perfect. Why? Because you're a representative for the entire Black community. You're the only Black person that these kids in your class and at school are going to see, Mm -hmm. and you have to put your best foot forward. It was quite a respectability politic, and I honestly feel like after um, Barack Obama became president, it eased up a little bit. Could you explain?
0: Sorry, what respectability politics? Oh, absolutely.
1: Smarter in seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So respectability politics describes this sociological phenomenon, or this you know phenomenon that happens within societies where people feel. as though if you present yourself as respectable, and it's not just respectable, it's how the dominant society views you as respectable. So if the dominant society is white supremacy, then you're trying to appear as close in proximity to whiteness as possible. Mm. This can mean straightening your hair. This can mean, you know, long hair for people who are assigned women, you know, like short hair for men and then beards and but not too bushy of a beard like it's all these very specific yes. things. a suit God. but a tailored suit but it really changes with the times it has to do with body It has to do with ableism it has to do with mm. so many different things um, and so when we have respectability politics that's when we have different marginalized groups policing how people should present behave conduct themselves in alignment with that dominant group and so at my house it basically became my family trying to fight racism through policing how their black children behaved outside of the home and how they looked outside of the home. And so in accordance
0: to the quote unquote values of beauty that you were just describing. Exactly. Or like
1: just really kind of perfection. And it becomes this very toxic thing. I don't think that it uh, kind of you could say it it dived into like a little bit of toxicity. But I think that it was what my parents knew best to do. It wasn't my parents trying to be like evil or harmful to us. It was like this will make school a little bit. Yeah. 100% hundred percent survival. Um, it gets frustrating though because sometimes uh, analysis of respectability politics will ignore the systems of oppression that cause it and just go after the people themselves and say, "Well, why not why don't you just liberate yourself?" And it's like, "Oh, I'd love to just liberate myself from capitalism, but rent is has to, you know rent has to be paid. So yeah. how do we do this in a different way?" But it was like a one hundred one on PR because I'm constantly thinking about how I'm looking to all of the people <laughs> oh my around God. me, you know, and it really became quite intense to you know me feeling like i had to study up on uh when uh president barack obama was senator barack obama and i would have parents coming to you know pick up their kids from school hop out of the car and come up to ask me the only black person they were going to see that day what i thought about and i instead of just being like i'm a kid i don't know i was like oh yes my wow. calling in life, let me answer. And it became quite intense, and I really rose to the occasion. And then it became how I tried to navigate life. Like, how do I counteract all of the ways that my physical being could make someone quote-unquote uncomfortable and use charm and charisma and humor and, you know, little facts to make people <laughs> like me? And wow. Yeah, that's kind of how I got to where I am. And that's what you're doing today. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But the better, yeah. the better thing is that I'm not doing it today because— I feel pressured to like it's genuinely part of my personality now like I'll talk to people who are like you know but you don't have to be so palatable and I'm like I kind of don't know how not to be and it's not so much palatability in the sense that I'm trying to like be non-controversial I love to be Mm -hmm. controversial I want to make sure that people are hearing me and seeing me and receiving me as much as I can extend myself Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to reach to like the far right and be like hey look at black people are humans like I'm not there I'm like okay well for the folks who are kind of like why are people mad about the fourth of July how Mm. can I explain the duplicity of Thomas Jefferson saying all men are created equal and then enslaving 600 people in the course of his lifetime
0: Mm. I think it's one thing to do this privately, even as a child. I can't imagine the responsibility of that. What made you want to do this publicly?
1: It wasn't until it had happened where I was like, oh, wow, look at all these little points in life that built me up for this moment. My first like big girl job out of university was working at Planned Parenthood, and part of that job was taking like uh, really dense educational material and like research on bodily autonomy and reproductive health and abortion and then turning that into something that we could use in the deep south to talk to different religious figures. Okay. So I was already kind of primed to train folks on how to talk about really tough things in ways that didn't endanger them or make other people feel vulnerable or like they should shut themselves down.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's something that people always ask me is what was the moment? Like I said there was some kind of like click moment where I was like, Do "You know what? I going to talk about feminism." And it like you're right, it was a slowly Progressing, it feels so natural. I feel like what's really hard is to explain and give tips to to people about something that comes so intuitively to me. So, like you said about being yourself, it's actually quite banal and boring or everyday to you. And then when people ask you, you're like, actually, I don't know. This is just the way I am. And there are a series of things that can lead to that. But ultimately, it comes intuitively and you're just kind of doing the next thing onto the next thing.
1: And then when you look back, though, it's exciting. well, at least for me, where I'm like, oh, no, this connected to that. Like the first award I had gotten ever mm. as a kid yeah. was for public speaking in like wow. fifth grade. So it kind of was like, oh, snap. And yes. I do that for a living now. So like it mm-hmm. kind of matches mm-hmm. up. But I speak a lot at like um, secondary schools. And so whenever the one of the students asks, how do I become an influencer? And all the teachers are like, no, don't tell the kids to become influencers. Yeah. I always remind them that like this job didn't exist when I was your age or, or when you're doing school toward a career sometimes Mm -hmm. it's a very practical thing but you also want to do like what is something you can do effortlessly that you're passionate about that you want to learn more about that you could do every single day and then find a way to make your interests and your talents match in a revenue stream and Mm influencing is a great way to do that but there's a world where I'm not doing that. You yeah, know?
0: I, I view I view uh, my social media platforms almost as a springboard to put my message out there, to share my art, to share my writing. I actually took a really strange path. I, I went to fashion school and look what I'm doing now. But it got me out of Plymouth where I was living and into London, which is exactly where I needed to be to meet queer people and to open my eyes to who I could be if I let go of all of these old versions of myself. And that allowed me to be myself and make better art. And then that started the path. There's no like real living your way to get to where you want to be and I think that abandoning those old views of like you said a direct path to education to getting a degree in what you want to do um It just doesn't apply to everyone anymore.
1: Oh, no. I mean, there's a world where I'm a a lawyer and I'm miserable. I was in law school and it was like week seven. And I saw on the calendar last date for tuition. And I was like, I'm not doing this. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) So I I actually went to um, Busboys and Poets with my friend Mariah, which is like this little coffee shop. And Angela Davis was giving a speech uh, with Erica Totten. Um, And it was like a moment. I love Angela Davis so much. Like, I think she was one of the few people that I felt like I like representationally like looked like Uh and couldn't see myself in and when I went to go see her speak I like waited until the Q&A crawled to the front and grabbed the mic from the MC like I pulled it down from the wire and I was like and I basically asked like should I drop out of law school and um you know from what I remember from that like mind-blowing moment was basically that I don't need an institution to create change yeah and if I'm asking the question that I probably already know the answer Mm. And so I dropped out of law school and my mom was like called it because my mom knew I didn't want to. What did be a Angela lawyer. Davis say? Oh, that's what she said was that I don't oh. need an institution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I realised No, I was like, Wait, what did <laughs> oh, she no, no, say? No. That's what she told okay. me. She's like, that I don't need an institution <laughs> to create change and that like, you know, basically like if you're asking this question <laughs> You d- you
0: were polling a big life choice and I did the same thing. Put my Instagram, should I drop out of uni? Ninety six percent of people said no. And I did. I did drop out.
1: Well, thank goodness I had Angel Davis to say, yeah, yeah you should. Yeah, and then yeah. also my mom, who said I should. My mom was like, why are you going to law school? This is not for you. Oh, okay. And I was like, because Legally Blonde is a very impressionable movie on me. Um, <laughs> my third year of law school when I would have graduated was when my first book came out. And so mm-hmm. that could have been my, you know, like I could have been a totally different trajectory. And I'm sure I could have helped people in that way, but I was miserable in law school. So if you're yeah. miserable where you are, like, are you going to keep on that path or are you going to start planning?
0: This is the thing I really want to talk about is that you're such a joyful person and a lot of people think that joy and activism can't go hand in hand. A lot that of it's... people think that misery is required. <laughs> yes, they do. And a, a movement cannot move if everyone's upset and, and miserable and almost bathing in this kind of cycle of, of bad news. But I understand why people think they go hand in hand because the reality of the stuff that we're talking about with social justice is heavy and depressing. But
1: I also think the state sponsors a lot of media that moves forward a lot of media that causes people to think that if you choose a life of being radically involved in other people's lives and the betterment of society then yeah. you're not going to be happy yeah you're better doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Because how else would we have a society, like, you know, everybody would be chaining themselves to oil tankers, like yes, I was saying.
0: exactly. Um, I think that joy is necessary so that you can fill other people up. I wouldn't be able to do the things I do if I wasn't so enthusiastic about them. I think that your joy sparks joy in other people as well. So how do you stay joyful in this work?
1: You know, it really reminds me of Audrey Lorde and like her conceptualization of self-care and all of this, like mm. that you know, joy being a revolutionary act and like you have to pour into yourself and that self-care is community care. Um, for me, it can be quite chemical. You know, I'm on antidepressants. I'm on, you know, uh, attention medication. I have to take care of like my mental health first. Mm-hmm. I've been medicated for quite a long time and it works really well. Um, even though that I'm on medication for anxiety, I still have to like meditate and take care of myself. Meditation doesn't work for everybody, but I think that, like, having a mechanism, whether it's through my faith practice or my yoga practice, where I can just, like, unplug, especially when I'm so online, can be really helpful. But I also love to be online. Like, I asked yesterday, I was like, what's the way that you're becoming your own beauty standard? And the responses I got, like, people telling me that they've gone through chemo and they're working on, like, you know, affirming their womanhood. I love that question. Oh, yeah. Like, because it's it's so deep, right? Like, it's so intense. How are you
0: becoming your own beauty standard? I love that.
1: And the responses were just, like... Wow, like, this this one woman reached out, and she was like, well, not only am I realizing that I'm still a woman invalid, having had a double mastectomy and chemo, but I'm also recognizing how, as a cisgender woman, this expectation of womanhood is harming me, too. And so if it's harming me, how—like, how, it must be harming, like, trans folks so much more. And, like, just people just cop in my DMs with, like, revelations of their lives, and yes. I'm like, that's what fuels me.
0: So you spoke then about leaning into your faith to keep you grounded um, and joyful in this work. How did you convert to Islam?
1: So I converted to Islam in 2015 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I spent a lot of time doing a lot of different like religious practices trying to find myself. Uh I grew up Christian, but I think after there was kind of like this moment of embezzlement at one of the churches that we were going to, I kind of had like a, I, I had a disillusionment there. And of course, that duplicity exists in all you know, religious establishments and non-religious establishments, quite frankly. But at the moment, I was looking for a grass is greener on the other side situation. Um, When I started going to mosque, it was like just this beautiful experience where I felt so welcomed. I've said this before, like when I come when I came through the doors of the mosque, it felt like I had come in out of a storm. And it was just like this place of calm and relief. Um, It was gender segregated, as a lot of mosques were. And at first I was like, this is very sexist. And yeah, a lot of the roots of that can be quite patriarchal but it was simultaneously the first time I was in like a space with other diverse women yeah where of like different age where we were just talking and just being amongst ourselves and it wasn't like a it was like a modest space where it wasn't like competitive
0: I can't remember the last I don't think I've actually ever experienced that yeah and it's quite beautiful like strangers initially strangers yeah yeah complete strangers there were
1: people who were there like just on vacation it was one of the first times where I didn't feel like I had to justify myself and I just could be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not everybody's experience going to the mosque first time, but it it was mine. And it made me question, why have I been so afraid to open the Quran? Why have I been so afraid to learn about this culture? Mm -hmm. And it's also ironic because my mom, who is so liberal, like I said, very body positive, the only one thing that she would always like comment on was if we were at a theme park and she saw uh, a Muslim woman in a hijab, she would like lament out loud, like, oh, that poor woman. And she had this very kind of like Western Mm -hmm. mindset of all Muslim women are being oppressed. And it's like, all women are being oppressed, honey, if you really want to talk about it. Um, I kind of had that subconsciously, as a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes your parents make biased statements, and it affects the way you operate in the world. And then I was like, "Mm, that's really like, you know, negatively colored this entire religion. And so as I started reading the Quran, I never saw something that said, If gay, stop here. Or if you're a woman, stop here. I was just like, so where where
0: does that come from then? That assumption.
1: It comes from colonization uh, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is constantly weaponized about same gender loving relationships and Mm -hmm. just people who are queer in general. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is essentially, and then I'm going to use he/him pronouns for God, but I believe that God is beyond gender and that gender is a human construct. But for brevity, Um, God sees a sinful town where there's like pillaging and sexual violence and just mayhem New Orleans during Mardi Gras. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, He's like, okay, no, I'm shutting this down. And really what sets God off is that uh, he sends these angels down. And during the course of this, there's a mob. And the mob Mm -hmm. is like, bring us these angels out so that basically we can attack them sexually. And then uh, Lot sends out, he takes his two daughters who are virgins and says, no, don't take these strangers, take my daughters. And then that story gets turned into, well, it was because they were trying to do gay sex on the on the angels that it's a problem. Instead of perhaps that sexual violence, dis, you know, disowning and setting up your children for sexual violence being mm-hmm. wrong, that sexual violence is a matter of, you know, war is wrong. Yeah. And all these things just get turned into gay sex is bad. And— that's so mind-blowing to me. Yes. And then you have the end of the story where they're fleeing the city and the the daughters get out safely and the angels get out safely and then um they're like turn your your back on those wicked ways and then Lot's wife looks back and she gets turned into a pillar of salt. And so that's like, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. The way that it gets told is like so <sighs> flagrantly patriarchal and protective of rape culture mm. because if you can take that story and also know that in human psychology if somebody is being attacked um or you know experiencing sexual violence <laughs> from a young age that has effects on the on the psyche what doesn't have afe- effects on the psyche or on the way that person conducts themselves is being gay yeah that's totally fine what we have a problem with is when people tell somebody that they can't be gay because of this totally misinterpreted thing. so who was gay in this story Uh, Literally nobody, but the the fact that the mob, well, potentially everybody, but anyway, the fact that the mob wanted to... Sodomized, That's the word Sodom and Gomorrah, yes, okay. the angels.
0: Okay, okay.
1: But we also know that throughout human history, there's been this trend of using sexual violence in war and in conflict to exert patriarchal dominance, to exert rape culture. And it makes a lot more sense to me that instead of this one story being the case where God is like, hey, I, I don't like gay people, gay people suck, it makes a lot more sense that God is like, hey, sexual violence, not allowed. Yeah. Consent violations, not allowed. I will yeah. destroy an entire town over somebody committing rape culture. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense to me. Yes. And with the historical record. But you have a whole bunch of other people and so many institutions that have said the inverse. And then um Matt Bernstein, who you also know, yeah, yeah. did us uh did a story talking about how the word homosexuality wasn't even added into the Bible, the Quran, the Torah until, you know, this period of colonization, Victorian colonization. Instead of having this quite sensible story of God condemning sexual violence, it's a story of a very warped and twisting interpretation of same-gender relationships being wrong. But Islam makes a lot of sense to me. It's very much in line with, like, historical, you know, the historical tradition. Of course, there's some patriarchal shenanigans in there because nothing is pure. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really where it comes from. And so I know my stuff. I yeah. will also simultaneously, like, when somebody comes to me and they're like, Blair, why should I support LGBTQ people? I'm not going to give them the reason. I'm just like, why is your default to treat people horribly. Yeah, let's talk about that first. Why yeah. do you need a justification to treat people like humans and instead of maybe like taking a step back and asking yourself if you're going to use a misinterpreted ancient text to be horrible?
0: You touched on how your mum used to say all oh, those poor women who cover themselves up. I reckon a lot of people listening to the podcast might also yeah. have that point of view. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? Because well, obviously so the, we're just, so pro pro-choi- um, choice, pro choice, and pro uh, women doing what they want with their bodies, except for that little bit. It's like people seem can't seem to get their heads around that it's a, still a feminist choice.
1: Well, I was at a dinner recently, and I was sitting next to this very nice gentleman, and he was like, "So why are you why are you hiding your hair?" And I was like, well, I think hiding implies that I have something to be ashamed of or whatever. But I just basically broke it down. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about, like, how my life is so public. And as being a woman, there's this expectation that your entire body, like, you are— people are entitled to you and your body and your space. And so that's a way for me to reclaim my body. But it's also helped me through being a survivor of sexual violence and being able to reclaim my body in that way and decide like very deliberately what I want to show and what I don't. But I've lived all the lives, you know, like um I found my old like uh my old iPhone with all my old pictures in it. And like mm. I had this super cute outfit for um Halloween where I was like a sexy teddy bear. Yeah. Where I had like a corset that I had done with like um basically I like, ripped open a teddy bear and I made the teddy bear for the corset. Uh-huh. And I had like a little cute skirt. Yeah, and yeah. I also used to make like anime themed
0: lingerie mm-hmm. in high school. So like, Gorgeous. I have lived all You've the lived lives. You've lived all the lives. Yeah. yeah. And it's like... There's this I, assumption that someone is doing it to you, isn't yeah. there? That, that's oh, completely. What, yeah. I mean, my
1: grandparents, the first time that they saw me and Akeem after I started wearing a hijab, we were for Mother's Day or Easter or something. And they just sat right across from him at the table scowling. And at a certain point, Akeem goes... Babe, can you tell him that I'm not the one making you wear that? And I was like <laughs> Okay, but the thing is, if that was the case, is scowling at my partner the solution? That's not a bystander intervention mechanism at all. Like throwing shade, like if you genuinely believe that somebody is in danger of having Mm. their bodily autonomy denied and taken away, sneering at them on the tube is not the solution. If you want to take bystander intervention trainings, there are so many institutions that do that. And it means fighting all types of things. It means fighting the fact that we can't just, you know, go on a run at 2 a.m. if we want to in... Hampstead Heat look at me naming yes. British places. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, it's actually one of my favorite places as well, oh, yeah. yeah.
1: But the fact that we can't just have free reign, like it's all interconnected. But I find that people don't actually care. They're just trying to throw their own their own shade, their own expectations. And I see the same thing being a gay Muslim, people will tell me, like, you know, having talked about Hajj, people will say, Well, how are you going to go to Saudi Arabia if you're gay? And I'm like, Do you actually care about Saudi Arabia's treatment of queer people? Or are you trying to hurt my feelings? <sighs> Yeah. Cause if so, that's on you.
0: Yeah. That's so true. I always, I always think the same of when, um, that same that same argument of when men bring up male sexual violence, when a woman is speaking about how bad the statistics, the statistics are for women, they'll be like, but what about men who get raped? What and it's about- like, well,
1: I didn't say anything that I didn't, erased that. No, no. And if you feel like you need to bring up something to delegitimize what I'm talking about, yeah. you don't care about any of this. You don't. And I see that so often, particularly when we talk about, um, in Black Lives Matter, this discussion of what about black on black crime? What about, you know, let's talk about gun crime. And I think that you see that in the in the UK as well, like, well, there's knife crime, but it's only happening amongst this group. Yes. And yeah. it's like, well, you don't actually care about violence if you're only using a statistic to shut down another argument.
0: Okay, so Blair, now I'm going to move on to my listener questions. These are some things that my audience have asked you. Can you give me a hand? Let's do it. Okay. I would love to hear about mentions of queerness in the Quran. So
1: this is the interesting thing. My friend, J. Mace III, who has a book called uh, The Black Trans Prayer Book, which is absolutely incredible and definitely follow them, um, talks about how um, when God talks about the sunrise and the sunset, people aren't running in the streets talking about, where is dawn and dusk? Hmm. And so I think in that way, it's important to remember that for a lot of the Abrahamic religions and a lot of religions generally, ancient ones especially, Queerness wasn't conceptualized in the same way. Gender wasn't conceptualized in the same way. And so I think that there have been places where it's inserted, um, but those ways are generally malicious. I think it's important to not read any religious text with the expectation that everybody was what we understand today to be cisgender and straight. You know, like a lot of folks were very polyamorous, as we've seen. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah like, so yeah, yeah. why are we reading those things into it? So I think that's like kind of my answer there. But then there are some hadiths which are not part, they're like, you know, kind of like proverbs uh in, in Christianity, kind of like stories that didn't make it into the Quran. And one of those is about genderqueer folks who were allowed to go to the women's areas and to the men's areas. Mm-hmm. And there's one story where this a gender queer person was being condemned by Muhammad, um, and that's seen as a condemnation of gender queer people. But But what it actually is is a combination of disloyalty and gossip because what the problem was is that they were going to the women's areas, getting dirt from the women and then telling the men.
0: Okay. And so
1: instead of it being that act, it becomes that person that's condemned. So clearly folks were there. But I think that we've had just such a colonial history since that time that the Quran was written that have made it a thing where people have to declare their queerness. And that wasn't so much the case before that time period, you know, like people just were.
0: Before colonization? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Amazing answer. Thank you so much. So one of the other questions here, what should I do if no one in my church will accept my sexuality?
1: It depends, right? Like, I think my gut reaction is tell you to go to a different church. But what if you're somebody who lives with your family, you aren't out, or, like, you know, you don't have another church where you are? I think that that's quite presumptuous for me to just say go somewhere else. Yeah, sure. Um, I would say that in Islam, and I've talked about this myself, um, And I think in a lot of monotheistic religions, we don't believe that other human beings are responsible for deciding our eternal fate, that that's God's duty, and that it's also inappropriate for human beings to Mm. declare themselves as God. So when somebody tells me you're going to hell, I'm like, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that God used Instagram. (laughs) And then also, if you think that God Uh, is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present— Why does God need you to tell me these things, right? Like, won't I feel it in my life? Like, what I'm feeling is God loving me, God affirming me, God uplifting me, opening doors for me, passing things through to me, like me being Mm -hmm. a vessel for these stories. So why do you feel the need to appoint yourself and anoint yourself to come to me and tell me that I'm not, you know, going to heaven when you're not even supposed to be God in the first place? Yeah. So I think that's one of the things, how to, like, protect your soul, to know that it's not your fault. So
0: affirming for yourself, even if people are saying these things. Oh, yeah, just to affirm
1: yourself because— Um, just like with coming out, like some people feel like they must come out and I'm like, yeah, if you want to, that's on, you know, that's fine. And in society, we're definitely told that we have to, but remember to come out to yourself first and to, you know, deal with your own heart first Mm. and your own identity first, because that's something only you can give to you. And that's something that nobody else can take away.
0: Yeah. Okay. Amazing answer. Thank you so much. So the next one here, when did the acronym LGBTQ come about? I only learned about bisexuality in 2014.
1: Oh, amazing. Well, I only learned about it in 2007. And, you know, the thing is, none of us knew that a fork was called a fork until we learned that it was called a fork. Yeah. Same thing with spoons yeah. and knives and everything else, you know? Um. And so never be ashamed of not knowing something before you knew it because that's a headache, you know? Like, yeah. there's so many things we don't know. Are we going to be ashamed that we don't know it? That's a waste of time when we can yeah. just be learning.
0: Yeah, the information just literally did not cross your path until that moment. It's out of your control. <laughs>
1: Intentionally, because isn't there like a section in the UK curriculum where you can't talk about being queer? And then that's a thing in the States as well. Uh, so the LGBTQ acronym. LGBTQ+ plus is quite recent I would say in the past 10 years. So it kind of goes so it was the, the homophile movement, you know same gender loving and then it became um, the gay movement and then the gay and lesbian movement and then it was quite a long time before bisexuals were included in that. It was never the acronym LGB um, and you know, fuck you to the LGB Alliance just because. And Mm, (laughs) um, even though we have trans folks who created this movement, who were really responsible, folks like Sylvia Rivera Marsha P. Johnson for shifting the movement from being like, hey, we're just like you, except we're gay, to being actually no and screw these laws around us not being able to assemble peacefully, screw these laws about us not being able to be who we are. Uh, let's fight police brutality. Let's fight v- police violence. That shift, that radical shift in the movement, happened because of gender nonconforming and gender queer people, and also bisexuals like Stormy. Um and so all these people coming together, it really wasn't, I think, until the 90s that we see the acronym LGBT, and then later on in the early 2000s and late 2000s LGBTQ for queer, mm-hmm. slash questioning, and then including I for intersex, uh, folks who are also impacted by all these systems, and then A for agender, asexual. But I also think that some folks think that A stands for allies, and if that's, you know, for me, I was like, no, I'm just here because it's for allies, <laughs> but it's actually because I'm very gay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs>
0: Wow, I've just taken in so much information about the queer community that I had no idea about, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. I, the only time I've ever heard those two words together was in a Peaches song. Um, so I'm glad to have the correct context of it now. Um, I think Blair is so interesting and that big fucking brain of hers just contains all of this knowledge. And I really hope that this was enlightening for you to listen to as well. I'm definitely gonna be thinking about this conversation for a while. Thank you so much to Blair again for joining me today and to all of you for listening. You can find Blair Imani on Instagram with the handle at Blair Imani, that's B-L-A-I-R-I-M-A-N-I. If you've enjoyed listening, then please do share it with your friends. To keep updated with all of the latest episodes as they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, we want to hear from you. Every month, we'll be taking your calls, your texts, and your voice notes for our call-in episode. We'll be discussing topics around money, relationships, queerness, body image, all kinds of stuff. If you'd like to ask a question or speak to my guest and I, please get in touch on WhatsApp. The number is plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. And don't forget you can join me every week for Ask Floss where I answer all of your questions from building confidence with your body hair to setting relationship boundaries and even my preference on cats or dogs. It's cats. Subscribe to Extra Floss to listen right now. Visit extrafloss.com to start your free trial and get access wherever you listen to your podcast or you can visit exactly on Apple Podcasts and hit try free at the top of the page. And a massive thank you to the incredible Black Honey who composed the original theme music for the show. They're fucking amazing. You can find them on Instagram at, at blackhoneyuk and you can check out their latest album written and directed. This is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. My producer is Millie Charles, assistant producer is Ella McLeod, executive producer is Carly Mail and the production coordinator is Lily Hambley. And I want to give a special thanks to Chris Skinner, Jonathan Imieri, Ryan O'Meara, and Teddy Riley for additional production. And thanks to our engineers, Jay Beale, Josh Gibbs, and mix engineer, Gulliver Tickle.